0: Hello. Welcome to episode five of Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. My name is Niall. Today's poem is composed upon Westminster Bridge, September the 3rd, 1802 by William Wordsworth. Last week I also introduced you to two varying ways of how we might look at a poem and I said that some poems are like painter's mountains in the sense that uh, when we see a painter's mountain it's a mountain that just looks beautiful from a distance we can take it in in one go. Um, What is beautiful about it is already available to us just from that one little glance of the eye. And some poems are like that. Some poems, you read through them and you get the point right away. They don't really need any, any decoding. They don't really need you to go over them or start to really look at all the little parts and how they come together. Although that can be a lot of fun too, even with the simplest of poems. But then we had another kind of poem that I compared to A Climber's Mountain. A climber's mountain is a mountain that maybe doesn't look as great as the painter's mountain from a distance. But the real beauty of that mountain is when you actually climb the thing, when you get up close and personal. And when you really investigate every single little crag that you can grab hold of with your calloused palms. And I think maybe today's poem is a bit of both again. It works perfectly fine as a poem that's like a painter's mountain. But that said, I think we can still get into it. We can still take it apart and look at some of the parts and hold them up to the light. I'm beginning to get into a sort of motorbike metaphor instead. I'm not that really. I've never been that into motorbikes. But my older brother, who's an engineer, bought one particular kind of motorbike that he enjoyed taking apart and putting back together again. Oh, my goodness. I feel another metaphor for reading and examining poems coming along. Um, he would take the whole thing apart, sort of clean it up, but he would take it apart. But then he would put it back together again afterwards. People often say, oh, no, if you take apart a poem like that, then you're killing the poem. You're destroying the magic. It is like a um, an animal that you cut up in a Petri dish. There's something about the essence of that animal that you'll never get to, but you'll keep on cutting into it to look for what it is. Well, that might be true, but the difference in this analogy is the motorbike can just be put back together again afterwards and it can run better and more smoothly than it ever ran before. In fact, you could get on that motorbike and still ride it halfway across the country, but have a new understanding and a new appreciation because you can triangulate this experience of the uh, free feeling of being on a motorbike with a concise understanding of all the little things that make it go. And I reckon we can do that with a poem. We can give it that first reading and we can just get that painter's mountain understanding of it. Then we can go deep and we can get that climber's mountain understanding when we really take the poem apart. But hey, we can put that poem back together. Just read through it again. And we can still read it with that same flow and immediacy that we read it the first time when we appreciated it. But now there's just an undertone to that immediacy. But shows we have a deeper understanding of the poem and little things jut out from it that we never noticed before so i reject the analogy that carefully reading over a poem is something that takes it apart and ruins its magic nah it increases its, its magic it increases di- the dimensions in which we can appreciate that poem and anyone who doesn't like that um can slap me over the face with a scented handkerchief um causing me to fall into the swooning couch Um, And call for laudanum. So I'm just going to read the poem. And then we can talk about the historical background of the poem. We can talk about Wordsworth himself. And then we can really get into the form of the poem. I think that's the order that we're going to do things in. Composed upon Westminster Bridge. September the 3rd, 1802. By William Wordsworth earth has not anything to show more fair dull would he be of soul who could pass by a sight so touching in its majesty the city now doth like a garment wear the beauty of the morning silent bare ships towers domes theatres and temples lie open unto the fields and to the sky all bright and glittering in the smokeless air Never did sun more beautifully sleep in his first splendour, valley, rock or hill. Never saw I, never felt, a calm so deep. The river glideth at his own sweet will. Dear God, the very houses seem asleep, and all that mighty heart is lying still. See, I don't really have to paraphrase that poem to you do I I don't really have to go over the argument of the poem. It's so plainly spoken and I think that's that's really interesting. It's spoken pretty much apart from the odd doth or the odd neer instead of never. The language is the same language we speak, and it's speak spoken in a similar tone as to how we speak too. I've I've picked a romantic poet, a poet from the Romantic era. The Romantic era stretched from the sort of end of the 18th century um, and through most of or a lot of the 19th century as well um, before, we, before Queen Victoria um, took to the throne. So there's a natural, a natural, well, not really natural, but it's just we normally sort of seg from the Romantic poets to the Victorian poets. Um, but it's not as if poetry just changed the day that Victoria became Queen. It's just a, a useful juncture in history. Wordsworth was still writing poetry at that time. So we looked at the Augustan poets, the neoclassical poets, last week. Now, often when we use the term romantic, you hear it contrasted with and compared to the term classical. Classical normally is about form and structure. It takes the the, the name classical from classical antiquity. Um, The way in which certain rules of composition, certain mathematical constants were used within composition. So the term romantic, we get this from the idea of the Romance languages, the Romance languages being the languages that came from the Roman, from the Latin. These languages being Spanish, Italian, French, Portuguese and These Romance languages often were used to write some great Romantic epics. So when we have late medieval Middle English poetry that focuses on chivalry, it's often inspired by the Romantic epics. And then when we get further on, when we look at when the sonnet itself becomes a part of the the court, it's again, it's something that came from the continent, something that came from, from the Romance languages. And so romantic often harks back to something that puts human experience... And human emotion at the center of things so so you could say that classical is the god's eye view of things the things where ultimately structure and form hold precedence and romantic is when um, emotion and subjectivity hold precedence so with the augustan poets we already looked at the idea of these rhyming couplets and these perfect little balances and how there's the idea of, the, of nature as the divine work of god and how poetry and its structure should also echo the divine work of god um, in this more outward classical and lawful sense whereas romance or romantic poetry or romantic art often centers the human being and the human subjective experience at the very middle of it i always think of films in this definition if you haven't seen tokyo story by ozu a japanese director you should watch it it's fantastic but the composition of the film it, it kind of uses classical composition the shots are composed more to do with the structures of almost these sort of mondrian squares and shapes of these japanese houses with the sliding paper doors and so it gives this idea of these structures that the human dramas play out within and the structures are very much sort of overbearing and dictating things and also used this in quite an interesting way because i think there's still a romantic aspect to his films But it's framed in a classical sense and it echoes the way that many of the characters in his films are constricted by the rigors of the the laws and the customs of Japanese society at the time. Whereas a romantic film maybe just puts the the actors front and center, they really are the heart of a shot it's their their emotion um their moment that is really framing everything else. I don't know why, but I think of that shot from Titanic with Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet holding their arms out as they as they race over the waves with um rubbish c g i dolphins just sort of jumping underneath them you get the idea there of how classical and romantic can contrast with each other. So we get to the romantic poets and I think Wordsworth in a lot of ways um, was the real progenitor of his ideas. I mean, we had William Blake who was obviously creating, who's seen as a romantic poet, but was creating um, a good while before Wordsworth was, but Wordsworth really through his critical essays um, as well as through a lot of his poetry sort of, Concretizes these ideas of what romanticism is, of course he doesn't call it romanticism at the time. that's something more that critics use to describe him later on and It's interesting that I pick Wordsworth because how does you know when I say the romantic poets to you guys, who do we think of We think of we think of Byron mad, bad, dangerous to know the sinner. Uh, The great fornicator, uh, the guy, just the naughty, naughty boy, Lord Byron. Who else do we think of? We think of Shelley, the rebel, the intellectual outsider, the person who vented his fury against the powers that be. He spoke truth to power with his brilliant sonnet, Ozymandias, and his brilliant polemic, The Mask of Anarchy, which was written in response to the Peterloo massacre. Um, We also have Keats. He's like the emotional outsider, the person who almost feels too much in this day and age, dies that tragic young death as well. Um, The young man who was not in the, you know, he was middle class. He wasn't high born like the other romantic poets and wasn't accepted because of that. We have Coleridge, the full on opium fiend, Samuel Taylor Coleridge in his his hallucinogenic uh, poems. So we have all these great, iconic, romantic poets. And then we get to William Wordsworth. And who is William Wordsworth after all of these guys that we've already looked at? He is known as the Daffodil Man. It doesn't quite have the same ring to it, does it? He's the guy who likes daffodils. I think the other reason why some people... Of course this is not true. There's a lot more to Wordsworth that we'll look at, obviously. But the other attitude people have about Wordsworth is I guess he didn't die young um, like Byron and Shelley and Keats. He didn't go off to the continent and have some terrible thing befall him. He stuck around in England and he got old and he had a few tragic things happen in his life. But he started off as someone who spoke truth to power as well. He, He, like the others, was inspired by the French Revolution. He was inspired by all the revolutions going on around the world. And but he changed his mind as he got older. And in fact, if anything, he became quite the conservative. And while everyone else was perhaps still holding on to their reputation in death as, a, as, as an iconoclast of one kind or another, Wordsworth became that ultimate beacon of the establishment. He became poet laureate in the final years of his life. I mean, it doesn't get more establishment than that. So I can see that being another reason why we pay it perhaps... Don't look at Wordsworth in the same way that we look at these other guys. So what is it about Wordsworth that we can appreciate? What is it about Wordsworth? Why have I picked Wordsworth? One reason why I've picked Wordsworth is I don't really know that much about him. I know a lot more about the other fellas, and and that's what called out to me. I know some of his poems, but I've not read loads of it. I've not read loads about his life. So it's been an interesting discovery for me. Maybe you're discovering just as much as me. Maybe you know more than me, and you are about to fiercely correct me in everything. If that's the case, then please do so. I really welcome it, and I mean that in the most sincere way. So... Wordsworth was someone, I think, who, who, who still was important um, within the Romantic movement because he really formalized a lot of the ideas and the concepts in his critical essays that he wrote about Romanticism. Perhaps the most important one being, I already spoke a couple of weeks ago. So when we looked at the border ballad of the Toir Corbys, I spoke about the lyrical ballads, which was a collection brought out by Coleridge and wordsworth most of the poems in that volume were written by wordsworth but equally famous perhaps more famous was the preface that wordsworth wrote for the second edition of the lyrical ballads in which he very much spells out his, his grand poetic theories um he, he he very much advocated for a plain language within the poetry um, inspired by the common folk, that the common folk could understand. This is because of an idea of nature that he also held dear in his poetry. That that nature again, the romantic poets they felt that they had to get back to nature. Nature again had to be the sort of grand metaphor, the way of illustrating things. There was a difference though between. Because we looked at the Augustans last week and the Augustans seemed to be well into nature too. So what was the difference? The Augustans were poets of ideas. They tried to express grand ideas and discoveries of science and classical ideas, using the classical idea of nature to illustrate it, the laws of nature, the order of nature. This is not the same with the Romantic poets. Romantic poets use nature is a sort of analogue for human emotion for actually when a when a human being is feeling these grand moments of of feeling this is what wordsworth called it feeling this would be echoed in something that they were they could see some experience that they were having of the natural world and there was a, a truth to feeling there was a truth to feeling that perhaps couldn't couldn't be found in science That something there was something at the center of the human experience that these great scientific discoveries had missed out. Now we have to take a look at the anxieties of the age at the same time, and that is the idea of science encroaching into the spiritual realm. I mean, we haven't got to Darwin yet, but already we're learning about how old the earth is from geology. Many things are not lining up with the biblical account. At the same time, we're, we're having more of a sort of mechanistic understanding of the heavens and of nature, as revealed by Isaac Newton. They certainly accepted a lot of the findings in science. At the same time, they kind of doubled down on the things that they felt science had neglected or science could not explain, those being human feeling and the human imagination. One way of looking at the romantic understanding is to look at the methodologies themselves, the methodologies of logic, and then the methodology, perhaps, maybe we can't call it a methodology, but, but the imagination. Logic is compared to the imagination. We find this this idea in a lot of romantic poets. Logic is seen as something that chops things up, um, whereas imagination joins things together. I think that's quite a good, good description of imagination and creativity, sort of putting things together. Not all things put together are the same, I read somewhere else someone comparing novelty to originality. I think that's really interesting that sometimes you just stick two things that aren't related together and it's just novel. There's nothing really powerful about doing that other than the fact that they're quite different. Perhaps that was behind the critique that the Augustan poets had of the metaphysical poets. Stuff that I talked about in the last few podcasts. But sometimes we put things together and they really have a very powerful effect. And that's the power of the imagination. Now, Wordsworth spoke about how someone could look upon their life and they could see pivotal moments in those life and in their life, and those pivotal moments are always emotional in their nature. They are not great logical epiphanies that change the courses of a human life. It is always great moments of, of, of fantastic emotional intensity. I think if you looked over your life right now, quite honestly those little points, those little junctions where your life veered from one direction to the other. I bet there's a really intense burst of emotion happening in all of those moments in your life. I think we like to think that we're rational actors and that we really make very informed decisions when we when we find ourselves hitting a cul-de-sac or hitting a crossroads in our lives. But emotion often is the thing that drives it. Wordsworth follows those paths in his poetry this culminated in his great epic poem one i have not read all of one i've only read excerpts of but i reckon next time we get to wordsworth i am going to make sure that i've read all of his thing but it's his great epic poem his life's work the one that was published after he died the prelude one the, the poem the great autobiographical poem signifying and detailing all of those great emotional moments within his life and the understandings that those emotional moments engendered And I think we have something happening here in this poem that we look at, these lines written on Westminster Bridge. So the first thing we hit upon with this poem is the hyperbole. That's a fancy word for exaggeration if you didn't know, but hyperbole is just too wonderful a word not to say all the time. Hyperbole. So if we look at some of the hyperbole that's happening within this sonnet, the sun is shining, it's very early morning obviously, it's probably summer. September not really summer end of summer and so it's early morning the sun is shining this is London of course in 1802 as well London would have looked very different in 1802 I think this is signified in the poem as well but let's look at these hyperbolic statements within the poem first earth has not anything to show more fair so there's that first line of hyperbole he's saying nothing on earth is as fair as this and he he revisits that hyperbole again never did sun more beautifully steep in his first splendor valley rock or hill never did never never did ever the entire history of the world this is the apex of beauty and fairness he we've got two lines where he states this now he softens things up a line after that and says never saw i never felt a calm so deep so now it is about him but we're near the end of the poem now we're in the final four lines when we finally get to this point but i think that is the point he can only speak about his own experiences sure we can talk objectively about what the tallest mountain is we can talk objectively about the the largest land carnivore to have ever walked the earth and say never has any land carnivore as large as this walked the earth But when we're talking about subjective judgments, such as as fairness, um, or when we're talking about the beauty of the sun steeping, this is not something that we can measure. This is not something that science can tell us. This is something that we can only find from our own lives, from our own experiences. And so this being the most touching moment of this happening in Wordsworth's life That lends it the authority because that's the only authority he can speak of when making this statement. Because everyone has their different idea of what the most beautiful thing in the world is. And this is his. And I quite agree with him. I have never been as touched in my life as I have been at some moments when I've just been crossing the bridges of the rivers in London. I will talk about these more when I wander off on one later on. But I'm just saying that I really understand the hyperbole behind this. He's not exaggerating. It's not necessarily hyperbolic. If we understand and accept that romantic idea that centres the human experience, then the only thing that we can say about beauty, the only thing that we can say about fairness, is that thing that touches us the most in our own little lives. But in romanticism, our lives aren't little. The locus of our being, the centre of our subjectivity, is everything. And I think that's what this poem states. There really isn't anything that confusing to really talk about in this poem. Otherwise, um, this was written in eighteen o two. So he was very much. He wasn't quite the misanthropic Tory that he became. He he was still very much a person who believed in the people. But it's interesting that, that, that in this most beautiful moment in his life it happens in a city that's full of people one of the most populous places in as always in the uk the most populous place as true then as it is now but there's no people (laughs) apart from his sister i think he was with his sister when he had this experience he was very close to his sister but there was no one else there and i totally understand the beauty of that if you've have you ever seen the film 28 days later yeah i'm going there Um, A zombie apocalypse film. But it begins with these eerie scenes that were recorded in central London. And people wondered how they were able to record these scenes of this one actor, Killian Murphy, walking about on his own around deserted streets in London. How on earth were they able to create this? It's simple. They went out filming in the early hours of the morning, uh, maybe on a weekday in central London, because central London's dead. It's absolutely, there's there's, there's just nothing happening. And it's as true then as it is now. They didn't need any special effects. They were able to kind of shut down a bridge for a while, knock a bus on its side and create a little apocalyptic montage, have a bloke wander down it, film him and then just say cut and everyone carried on going to work across the bridge. It wasn't a problem. So that hasn't changed. And I can, there there is an eeriness to it. So it's quite strange what I think of a zombie movie being perhaps the great contemporary reply to this poem. There's something else I I find interesting about the poem, which is it was it was um, it was written in the same year as another very famous poem. By Wordsworth, one perhaps his most famous poem, other than, than the prelude, I wandered lonely as a cloud, those first four lines. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high over hills and dales when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils. And he personifies these daffodils like they are a crowd, like they are a massive crowd of people. I think we can sort of look at these two poems together in the sense that he spent his life mainly in two locations, in London and in the Lake District of Northern England. If you don't know, I've only been there once. It's absolutely breathtakingly beautiful part of a country. And I can imagine how these two poems echo each other. I think there's an aspect of the beauty of the lakes that almost sort of shimmers when he talks about water and sky and the dazzle and the glitter of the waters And something echoes the lakes of the Lake District in this view of London in the early hours of the morning when there's no one there and the city is so quiet. But at the same time, when he finds transcendental beauty in the Lake District, it's a similar thing where he sees a big old field of daffodils. And what do those daffodils remind him of? A crowd of people. So you can imagine this idea of this image of the city. He goes between both places, but he almost sees, in his most transcendent, transcendental and influential moments, both these experiences were in the same year, by the way. That he, they would reflect each other, they would echo each other. It's it's almost like when he could see the ghost of one, when he was in the other, that things opened up and became infinite. I think that's the beauty of both poems. I am certainly a believer myself there's a beauty to be found in the city that you don't necessarily get in the countryside. The countryside is beautiful but there's something about the surprise and the strangeness and the power of moments of natural beauty within a city, be it the wave of a light is at a certain hour be it little sudden bursts of vegetation be it a budlier growing out of a, a chimney or just little green spaces that we find in, in quiet little corners of London. There's a real power to it. I think it's in that contrast. And I think sometimes these little moments of nature, these little natural experiences within a great metropolis are often more powerful because of their unexpectedness, because of their strangeness, because of their otherness when they are in the middle of a city. And maybe that's that's echoed when he when he takes that experience into the Lake Districts and sees crowds of people, um, joyful crowds, unlike London crowds, within these daffodils. A few words about the form. So once again, we're looking at a sonnet. One thing that the Romantics changed again, coming after the neoclassical Augustan poets, is the neoclassical Augustan poets... Their their main form that they used was the epistle, but they often used either blank verse, or which is unrhymed iambic pentameter, or they used rhyming couplets in verse paragraphs, and often wrote epistles, which are letters, or essays, big long grand theories. These weren't lyric poems. Um, we defined it last week, but I'll just say it again. A lyric poem is a subjective poem written from the vantage point of the speaker. It's written in the first person. It uses what we call the lyric I. So the I, I wandered lonely as a cloud, is very much the centre of the poem. The lyric poem is now synonymous with what poetry is. You ask anyone what poetry is and they will often say, they won't say it's a long narrative thing, a story, a long story that rhymes or follows a certain form. They might say it rhymes, but they'll say it's about someone's feelings. They'll probably say it's about love. So the lyric poem really is our main idea about poetry. But for a long time, the lyric poem was seen as the most inferior form. Firstly, because of its association with a poet called Sappho, the Greek poet. Sappho, who was really one of the first masters of the lyric form of poetry. But her brilliance at it led to people just immediately associating the lyric form with women whereas the epic form is the business of men and so by merit of that it was seen as inferior but now we have these men it's still men i'm afraid next week won't be men but this week it's still the men men are now writing these lyric poems and now these lyric poems are are seen as the highest form of poetry for the first time in english literature at least Sure, Shakespeare wrote lyric poems, he wrote sonnets about his feelings, he wrote sonnets about love. But these sonnets weren't seen as high um, a literary achievement as his plays, for instance. It was his plays that were his bread and butter. The sonnets were his way of, I guess, getting people to take favour upon him in courtly life. Or his way of trying to seduce young men as well. Go back to episode one, if you haven't already listened to that one. So this is really the time when when the lyric poem finally took over as the highest form of poetry. And it's carried on that way. People still see the lyric poem as the most identifiable way of writing a poem. So this really happened in the Romantic era with the Romantic poets. Another thing the Romantic poets did is they rediscovered the old forms. The ode was one form that a lot of Romantics used, and we will certainly revisit the uh, the ode in a few weeks' time. And so a lot of the old forms came back into currency as well with them. And here we have a sonnet, and not just any old sonnet. We have the, the OG sonnet, the original kind of sonnet, what we would call the Italian or the Petrarchan sonnet. And we spoke about this when we when we looked at Shakespeare's Sonnet 66. The Petrarchan sonnet is much more a a sonnet that's that's for the Italian language where there are a lot more rhyming sounds. In the entire 14 lines of the poem we only have four rhyming sounds. So we have the first eight lines, the octave, that have the rhyming variations of fair and by. So fair, by, majesty, where, bear lie sky air so the first eight lines only make use of two end rhymes and then moving on from there we we hit the final sestet and again it's it's just another set of two rhymes repeated steep hill deep will asleep still so it takes it takes a certain amount of skill to be able to do this because you have fewer words to play with in the English language. And that's one reason why poets such as Spencer and Shakespeare rejigged the sonnets so that they didn't have to find as many rhyming words. That Actually, we only we only had to get, you know, if you only had to rhyme one rhyme with another once for each rhyme over the whole poem whereas with the Italian form look especially this variation of the Italian form we only have four rhyme sounds used throughout the entire 14 lines so that takes the great ingenuity of a poet it's a real challenge of the poet and the the romantic poets loved being inventive with form they liked the challenge of form they often wrote sonnets competitively um, against each other as well I'm sure I'm going to revisit Wordsworth. I'm definitely going to revisit the other romantic poems. So I don't have to really say everything about them now. So I hope I've said enough to whet your whistle, to whet your appetite about the romantic poets when we do eventually return to them. But for now, I think it's time for me to wander off on one. That means we have abandoned all academic rigour. We have abandoned all pretense of, of... trying to give some sound and scholarly reading of his poem. And now I am able, I'm liberated, and I'm able, as Ric Flair just said, I am ready to wander off on one woo. I want to talk about bridges. It's been an interesting week with regard to bridges. When I run my poetry night at the Poetry Cafe on a Tuesday night, as I have done since the dawn of time, I often cross waterloo bridge on the way home be it on a bus in a car or sometimes on foot and waterloo bridge has been the site of a protest for the past week so i know it's not westminster bridge they would no one would ever be able to do this on westminster bridge because the houses of parliament are there at one end of westminster bridge so i totally understand Perhaps why they strategically picked Waterloo Bridge instead. But so plenty of protesters have occupied many sites around London, one of them being Waterloo Bridge. I love Waterloo Bridge. It's one of my favourite places. I love Blackfriars Bridge as well. I love any point of London when I end up crossing the river. But I certainly I I understand, especially looking at the romantics, with the romantics have been environmentalists, I'm pretty sure they would have been so i i i do i do think perhaps that even wordsworth who was a lover of nature all of his life no matter how his political sensibilities changed he might still have been up for a bit of a protest here maybe not a bit of a protest but he might have i don't know <laughs> Been sympathetic to it, at least. And so many people who feel that climate change is not being properly addressed in today's society and in today's news climate or by the media or by, by the governments, they have decided to take things into their hands, cause great disruption, um, including op- occupying a bridge in London. And I think it's interesting that they are occupying a bridge and I get it. The main reason is to stop traffic. It will divert traffic, obviously, but it's not necessarily going to stop cars coming into London. But they're causing disruption and they're trying to make a point, causing disruption. But I think bridges in London, there's just something spiritual about them. I think that's what the power of this poem has over me and many others. I I've written poems about crossing the bridges in London there is something about this I remember my fate one of my favourite moments when I used to head to work for a gardening job what I used to do many 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 moons ago many moons ago a few decades ago but every now and again I would I'd be on this train and I would cross the bridge across the river at the exact moment of sunrise and the waters as I say in the poem would be the same magenta as the kitchen in my favorite Matisse painting and oh my goodness there was just something about that moment that took my breath away there was something about that moment that I looked forward to every year I always got the same train to this job but I only but I knew that only a couple of times a year the fates would align so that the sun would be rising at that, that exact moment that I crossed the bridge on this train and that the world and the waters in the city would be transformed in this sense. And there was something just healing about that feeling. As much as I sometimes hated that job, if I could just catch that little moment, oh my goodness, I would feel enriched for the rest of the day, maybe longer than that. And I never get bored of crossing the bridge. I never get bored of it. No matter whether I'm on the bus, no matter what time of day it is, there is just something magical about it that really transformed my life and maybe made a romantic poet of me as much as I try and deny that. But yeah, there is something sacred about the bridges of London. Um, the idea that actually bridges were, were, were part of terrorist attacks a couple of years ago in London as well. The way that the structures of of bridges were weaponized in a way of, to, to to inflict harm upon people, but there was something other than the obvious violence and the terror and the loss of life and the malevolence again there's something almost sacrilegious about the bridges in London um being used as part of a terrorist atrocity and I remember one thing, if we're talking about things that weren't really reported in the news, one particular thing was a couple of days after a terrorist attack, um, an Islamist terrorist attack on Westminster Bridge. A group of Muslim women um, in solidarity with the people that died in the attack, in sympathy for the people that died in the attack, um, held hands across the bridge to show that solidarity. And I I kind of love that um, because the Muslim community are often, often told that they have to apologize for every atrocity that is done in their name. And I think it always takes my breath away how much they actually do apologize and, and denounce publicly what is done in the name of their religion by, by a few warped individuals. But I love this gesture. I don't know why. Maybe there's something more beautiful About that, this idea of just a bunch of normal Muslim women coming together and holding hands across this bridge to show human unity, to show human unity in front, in in the face of things that want us to be split apart. And I think bridges can be a symbol, especially in London, where we always make a big thing about the north-south divide. But bridges are also a sign of unity. And I just perhaps want to finish this podcast with that idea of all the things that we have to do with bridges, of all the transcendental ideas and all great terrors and all the great wastes of public money that we have associated with bridges in London. I like the idea of these women holding hands across a bridge, across the Thames, saying we're all together. I'm going to leave it there. I hope you enjoyed it. I enjoyed doing this podcast. I, I, I normally do this in the morning, but the kids are on holiday <laughs> and I'm on holiday too. I'm not teaching. And so I'm looking after them. I can't do a podcast with little people, with little people in my life. So I'm doing this late in the evening and I'm, I'm drinking a beer right now as well. And it's a completely different vibe. Normally it's morning coffee, hyper. Now it's me just having a beer and not too much beer, don't worry. Just a little bit of beer, just to lubricate lubricate the old Irish tongue that I have I just wanted to say a really big thank you to all the people that have shared the podcast have written to me have written really nice emails and messages to me about the podcast um, and people that have come up to me at the open mic and told me that they've listened to the podcast and they really enjoy it I hope you enjoyed this one as much I also want to thank you thank all the people that gave five star reviews and one four star review <laughs> but that's good four star reviews are fantastic Four-star reviews, they're like, you know, they're like, when you buy something on Amazon, right, you you look at the four-star reviews, don't you? You you buy anything online, it's the four-star reviews that you feel this is actually quite good. If someone gives something four stars, they're not being hyperbolic. Oh, yes, I'm using that word again. They're actually saying it's quite good. That said, let's not have too many of those, all right? Five-star reviews are much nicer. Just ignore everything I've just said. (laughs) Yeah, as I said, if if you haven't already, if you want to help us, if you want to help this podcast to grow, then please feel free to share it. Please feel free to follow it. Please feel free to leave a review on iTunes, whatever it is that can help it. If even, and even if you want to just say to another human being with your mouth into their ears, hey, this is a really good podcast about poems. I really appreciate your listening. I really appreciate your feedback and I really appreciate your sharing. I'll see you guys in a week's time where we will finally, finally, after all the dead white men, we'll be looking at a woman. She's still dead and she's still white, but we'll be looking at a woman and we'll look at, um, I think we'll look at a few woman poets in a row. I don't say female poets, by the way, because female, it just sounds like some weird sort of nature documentary uh, woman poets and then hopefully after that we might even look at some, we'll look at some Harlem Renaissance poets once we got past modernism as well so we're going to have a lot more variation in this podcast I promise Um I've got nothing against dead white men by the way um, if there are any dead white men listening to this podcast right now I, I, I mean it in the most affectionate way this podcast is all about the dead I like the dead This is all about having a conversation with the dead. Big up the dead. Thank you so much. I'm going to enjoy the rest of this beer. I hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend or week or whenever you do listen to this podcast. And I hope uh, that I find your sympathetic eardrums next time I do this. Have a good one. Bye bye.